Welcome to welcome to this lesson on the future future in the past. your ward one council member and you're listening to no tucson so we started this podcast early on during the pandemic as another means to share information and resources with our community and have dialogue about what's happening but we also thought it was important to highlight the work of some of our community members here in ward one and i'm really excited to have a good friend of mine dr lydia altero here with us today to talk about their new book so before we get started, Dr. Otero, if you could tell our listeners, our, our public, your gender pronouns so we can go from there. Yeah, I prefer they, them, but I'm not so dogmatic about it. So if people slip and say she and her, I'm, uh, I'm not going to jump all over folks. Thank you for that. I know you've been a big, you know, mentor and guide for me, you know, in my own, you know, budding queerness. So Thank you for, for sharing that with us. It's a journey, right, Lane? And thank you for having me on this podcast and talking to the folks that, that your constituents in Ward 1, because uh, Ward 1 is my home, and it's certainly always loved the West Side. And when people are looking for, to, to move somewhere, I said, it's always the West always Side. It's the West Side, yes. West so side. so your most recent book is a memoir titled In the Shadows of the Freeway, Growing Up Brown and Queer. A couple years back, you put out La Calle, which has done really well and kind of really informed our community about the impact of urban renewal here in Tucson. And so when um, you told me you were working on this book, you know, I've always known that like I've grown up near the freeway all of my life, but you had a different relationship to it because for me, it was just this monstrosity that existed before I was born. You had a different relationship to it. And, and so I was thinking about how poignant it is because it captures, you know, this feeling of isolation that comes with being brown and queer and having the freeway kind of divide you from the rest of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wondering, you know, what was going through through your head when you landed on that title? Yeah, it was the reality of being raised near the freeway, as you mentioned, and what it meant in terms of this barrier that isolated the community I lived in, uh, how it affected me, how it affected my family, how it affected this house that sat on the corner of Farmington and 24th Street that actually is still there, how it affected the street of Farmington, how it affected that whole barrio. So in this simultaneously, at the same time where I'm trying to figure out queerness, there's this like displacement changes happening while I'm growing up. So it's the intersections, right? It's growing up near this freeway, which is a huge reality that affects my day-to-day, everyday life. It changes the school boundaries. So I can't go to a neighborhood school like my older siblings did because now there's a freeway there. So it affects those things. And those are very profound to me to have to go to a school so far away, especially since my family didn't have a car. So yeah, it's trying to tell the story about both of these things. I didn't want to shy away from the queerness either. I think that um, 
I'm starting to see some, some of the resistance to me outing myself in this way or trying to make queerness part of the narrative because I think that La Calle was, was well-received and uh, gente loved it. And now there is some sort of resistance. Yeah, but do you have to talk about the being queer? Can you just talk about the freeway? Can you just talk about urban development? And it really is part of my story and part of my past. So I couldn't really separate it. How can you talk about personal displacement, trying to find your place in an environment where there is actual displacement? So I wrote this book trying to merge those different identities and of course being brown and I, I use the word brown because language is so important. And I can't say that I was a Chicanx, a Latinx at that time, because that language wasn't being used when I was growing up in the late 1950s and 1960s. So I didn't identify in a particular way at that time. So that's why I used the brown. And queer, being gender non-binary, I didn't have that language, but I knew that I was different. I knew that queerness was there and I felt it. So that's why I use these titles in the book. And growing up, of course, is to tell, to signal to readers that it's a coming of age story and it's going to end. Some, some people say, well, why did it end when you graduated high school and went on to college? And I'm like, well, because it had to end and because I, I felt like I grew up. Yeah, that's how the title came about, Lane. Well, th thank you, Otero. And I know that you plan on having follow-up, right? Like continuation to, to the memoir. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think, again, growing up here in Tucson, and like I said, my relationship to the freeway as well, and kind of coming into my queerness later in life, but you, you see, like just reading your story and, and the ways that you navigated, you know, the world at that time, that I could see a little bit of myself in that too. Not all the way, but I could see, you know, mm -hmm. ways that I was trying to push the boundaries and mm -hmm. that I would get put back in my mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. um, growing up. So uh, for me, it was really powerful to, to see that. So um, my, my next question for you is, what are some of the connections between then and now, specifically when it comes to what drives development and funding and, and decisions that um, the city is making? Right. And at this time, it was the city and the county and the federal government, certainly because of the highways that were being built and the funding that was coming into localities to build what we know as the I-10 and the freeway. But this had been in the conversations since 1938, talking about this bypass. And I just want to remind folks that might be listening that I'm a researcher and I use primary sources, I use the newspapers, I use the archives to find out this information. Some people that have read the book say, you have such a great memory that you remember what date this happened. And uh, I may have had a general date, but I'm able to use newspaper archives and look up things and find out the exact time when things happened. And of course, I wasn't around in 1938. But when I researched the history of the freeway, there's conversations that are happening around developing this, uh, putting together this freeway or building this freeway, but the city doesn't have money to do it. So they put it aside, but they know they want to build something. My uh, parents don't buy the property in, in which I grew up until about 1941. 
So I think that's important because there could have been a moratorium on building because these properties were sold for less than uh, properties on the east side. And in my book, I have a newspaper ad that shows you the difference. So if it was affordable for people that with less with less money and so they could, the city could have said, hey, we're planning this freeway in this area. Let's not sell properties here and let's stop people from building their homes here because it's destined to become, you know, highway system. But that didn't happen. So they allowed people to keep building down this street, Farmington. And uh, the street is there. It's the street by the Pancake Place and where Star Pass starts and near the I-10. So in my memory, when I remember this place, I remember a lot of families that lived there. And so all those families were either bought out and paid less than their property was worth because of the freeway. I'm just talking about family members of mine that also lived on Farmington. They ended up moving to the area near uh, C.E. Rose because they were given some money because the city wanted their property. Our house on Farmington, my parents were never offered to be bought out because it wasn't in the way. Our house and two other houses were left to exist. And so while other families eventually moved away because of the different problems that were happening on that street, my family didn't have the resources to move somewhere else. And so we had to make peace and live with this freeway that was uh, less than a football field away from our house. And it was our day-to-day, hourly-to-hourly existence, listening to the noise of the freeway, and also having to navigate this freeway in terms of all of the stores, all of the markets were on the other side of the freeway. So it was an interesting existence. But yeah, I think that telling that story of the people that were removed, that were displaced, that were Uh, that once called Farmington Road their home is important to me because it's one of those forgotten histories, hidden histories, dormant histories. And if you drive down Farmington now, in your wildest dreams, you can't imagine it was a vibrant neighborhood, right? Because there's a hotel there, there's a big empty lot, but uh, it's pretty isolated and it's pretty empty. And uh, so I think it was important for me to tell this story. And before finished this book, I walked down Farmington and I looked down and I remember people and I remember families that lived there. And I thought, well, if I don't tell this story, who will tell this story? Because it could be one of those stories. And there are these types of histories throughout Tucson that just go dormant or that just remain dormant and that remain forgotten and therefore not important. But I think What happened to us, to this family, what happened to the people that once called Farmington Road their home, and what happened to this neighborhood, I think is very important. And especially today, when we're trying to build these these grassroots movements around more equitable housing, and I know that, Lane, you're involved in this, and we're trying to bring some consciousness around inequities that we need to know the history of more of more neighborhoods, especially those neighborhoods that were once thrive and were populated and how they've changed over time. Because 
I think we need that anchor of history in order to formulate these these new movements. Yeah, thank thank you for uh, for stating that because you know, like it wasn't till I went to college and learning about environmental racism and being like, where do you know communities of color were they situated next to? And it's like the landfill. I also lived close to the landfill at one point in my life. You know, it was like the landfill, mm-hmm. the freeway, the power plants. You know, where water has been contaminated, and I was like, oh. That's all of my experience growing up on the South side and the West side. Mm -hmm. Um, That's interesting. And so you're you're naming this, but within the narrative of what happened here locally, I think is really important. And and so I'm I'm very thankful because I can learn about the racist policies of how highways went into cities, but I can never really learn about how that also played out here in Tucson. And so I wanted to quote something from your book where you're talking about the then mayor back in 1947, Happy Houston when he said he cited environmental factors such as heavy traffic, fires, and even explosions as reasons for diverting traffic from downtown, so from Stone Avenue to the proposed location where it was seen as like a condemned area with low property value. So it was fine. And that's so blatant, right? I think it's true in Tucson and in every place in this nation where there is a freeway built through an urban area that we're going to encounter stories of loss and displacement. That happens in Los Santos, happened in Albuquerque, happened here. But are those the people that generally tell their stories, share those stories? And generally not. So I think that, yeah, putting this in a book, telling the story in a way that people can access in libraries in a form that's hard to ignore is very important for me because Not only did Happy Houston say, hey, let's build the freeway over there because these brown people that live there aren't as important as the people and the businesses on Stone Avenue. That's very blatant. But then there's another example I give because me as a child, I remember flooding that happened throughout the neighborhood. And so here's another example of environmental racism when there's flooding going on at Davis Mountain Air Force on the landing strips and it's dangerous for the planes. So they divert the water and they send it through these channels. Eventually it makes it to the Julian Wash and it's the wash right behind our neighborhood. So every time it rains, problem is solved at DM. But our neighborhood had to deal with the severe flooding. We could never have carpeting in our home and we had to have our furniture on blocks. And after the flooding, we had to clean up the mess. So there's another example of environmental racism. And one more example, because we're on this topic, just the delivery of water that we were less than a mile from downtown Tucson, and yet we still had to depend on wells to get our water, while nine miles away on Wilmont in these new developments, the city's providing water for these new arrivals and for these subdivisions that are merging to the east side. So I think that there's there's a few examples that I cite in my book where people say, well, that wasn't racism, that was just progress. And and of course my book Lakaya is that, but there's human intention and there's human engineering involved and people made these decisions to put my family, my community, my body at risk. And that's important to recognize. 
does it happen now? I think it does happen, but I think these examples that cumulatively I provide my book are important for people to learn about. Yeah, people have biases, you know, and like really bringing that to the forefront and how that's informing their decisions. So you can't say, you know, it was just progress. It's like progress at the cost of what? Right, right. And Lane, you know more about this than I do in terms of the current dynamics, but the dynamics that happen in La Calle and here um, in my newest book, In the Shadows, is of people being displaced and forced out. And what's happening now is these same communities that had to endure this environmental racism now are at risk because long-term residents are being priced out of these communities. So, I mean, it's uh, because now they're desirable. So I think that this history of these areas are really important to chronicle. I also just kind of wanted to add some of the things that I was reflecting on as I, you know, and looking at, at, the, at the book. It's like, who was in support of it? It's like, you have the Tucson City Council, the Chamber of Commerce, you know, the news outlets, the Tucson Citizen, mm-hmm. you have Tucson Real Estate Board, you know, just mm-hmm. like all of the power players in the city behind this effort. And this is kind of what you what you talked about in, in La Calle, right, that you have mm-hmm. these city officials or these other um, private entities pushing, and then you have the voters playing a role, making decisions for these communities that they don't even live in, and, mm-hmm. and they're okay with that. But after that happened, you know, after the city had purchased and demolished a lot of the homes to build the freeway, what was left over, they sold it or auctioned it off, you know, right. to encourage commercial development, you know, just, just like... Ah, you know, how do these things, how, how is this okay? But that's what we have today. That's why we have the corridors that exist there today. So could you, could you tell us a little bit, you know, because I know that in your books, you write about how these Mm -hmm. decisions are made and how they impact, you know, the communities, but you also write about the resistance that comes. So could you tell us a little bit about the story of resistance, you know, in the construction of the freeway of I-10? Sure. So these families did try to organize, and I found some evidence of families trying to resist. And uh, there's some uh, like full-page ads in the, both The Citizen and The Star where people put forth their name. And so then I took those names, and I used the data in the archives to try to solidify, because sometimes the names were really hard to read with print. And I made a list of people that resisted and in the ad where the main ad said, say no to the freeway. If you could just like bear with me, I would, I would just like to read what they signed on to, what they signed on to who was we who have homes in the path of the proposed freeway hereby plead with you voters of Tucson not to deprive us of our homes. You will realize that we cannot move or buy a place to live anywhere for the amount we will receive for our homes. And the plea was, please vote no on the freeway. And there's a list of names. And it took a lot of work. And uh, some of the staff at my former office helped me with these names. And I wanted to put these names all in one place on one page of a book because it's to memorialize these people that once lived there and who once tried to take action to preserve their homes. I know I wrote La Calle, but I never was able to have this data of all the people that were displaced because urban renewal was such a long process that, you know, it was a process that finally got approved in 1966, but the city had been trying to move toward urban renewal since the late 1940s. So 
could never acquire like a, a cumulative list, but I could hear. And uh, sometimes I just like looking at the names because they're just like different types of names, but I'm just collecting them into one place, into one page, uh, I think is important. It's, it's important for me as a historian, and it's important for me as a person that once lived there. So yeah, there was this resistance. But the larger dynamics that you asked about, Lane, is, um, you know, we are, this is going to be unpopular, um, my position on this, but Tucson is not known for having too much or any manufacturing. And so when you when you have an economy based on real estate where, where development is king, I mean, you counter these problems. That's why tourism is so important because the drive to bring new people to Tucson is really important and driven primarily by real estate interests because they're very invested that new people come to Tucson, more money people, right, that can afford to buy homes, come to Tucson and decide to move here. And once they decide to move here, they buy a home. The more people that move to Tucson, the more property values increase. Those that are already living here or have been here a while, they get priced out. That's why uh, prices here in the Tucson area, they keep increasing, right? So this economy based on tourism, I think there's decisions that are being made about the city based on what outsiders will like, not necessarily based on what Tucson residents would like or would benefit from. So I think that this economy based on pursuing these these images of Tucson being a particular way, I mean, just urban renewal, getting rid of this barrio because it was bad for tourism. Well, now it would be good for tourism, right? 50 years later. But at that time, it was bad for tourism. And so that was made, one of the main reasons is to make Tucson more American. So they demolish 80 acres of this old barrios and of Sonoran Row housing. And it would have been really cool to still have and be able to walk through today. It would have been a magnet for tourism today. But back then, city leaders and city developers, and mostly who are influenced by the real estate industry, couldn't envision that. So this 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 economy that's based on just real estate and property values will work until it stops working. It's almost like a Ponzi scheme. When it stops working, it's going to stop working. But uh, at some point... There has to be a realignment into the city priorities and, you know, make decisions based on the residents who actually live here, not potential residents that live somewhere else that we want to convince to move here or to visit here because of them moving here. Yeah, those are definitely the challenges, you know, that we're facing right now. So I actually appreciate you again, you know, naming what those decisions that were made in the past, how are, you know, they're impacting us today with affordability and, and folks that have historically been, you know, from these from these areas can't even afford to, to buy a house now because it's so pricey. Uh, and so in the book, you also talk about two family deaths that happened in or around the freeway. Could you tell us a little bit about that, you know, before we kind of shift into the queer part of the book? <laughs> sure. Um, when when the freeway was first built, it's on ground level. And that's so egregious because there was no underpass or overpass for people to cross the freeway. It was unimportant to urban developers and planners. They just thought, well, we'll build this freeway and 
there, it'll be done. Uh, and didn't think about people like on the west side of the freeway, how are we gonna get to markets? How are we gonna get downtown? And uh, my two sisters remember just crossing the freeway and they, and they built, they had a little greenery in the middle and they'd actually use that green area as a park. So they, they were crossing the freeway all the time. And it's hard for me to believe that they were, that they did that. But my, my grandfather, who was my, at that time, my primary caretaker, because my mother was working as a maid at the Holiday Inn down at the end of Farmington, was uh, run over. And not only was he run over, he was run over and his body was mangled up into many pieces. And it was just so violent. And I think that there's a hesitancy to categorize building a, fee, a freeway in a residential area as a form of violence. And I think it was. I mean, it was violent the way he was killed and the, the car was never identified. And so my grandfather's death is just one of these little things that happened and never were recognized as having greater implications. Eventually the freeway was built higher and there was an underpass so that we could cross but also the trauma that my family had to endure. My sister, who heard this ruckus and commotion, ran over there and saw that it was my grandfather in pieces and ran back to tell my mother. And my mother, who ran over to see her father scattered throughout the freeway. I mean, that's violence. So to have his picture in this book is really important to me because I didn't want him to just be one of these nameless folks that disappeared because his life meant something to me and to our family. And it meant something to our city too, because he actually was this part of this labor force that built Tucson with his hands. I mean, he was a construction worker. He built the towers of San Agustin Church. He was very proud of that. So he contributed to the making of Tucson. And unfortunately, when he was killed in that manner, there was never any recognition of him. And he's like many countless people who are just these cogs that provide labor, but who aren't recognized for being active contributors, right? And right now in Tucson, we're in this phase where we want to glorify the designers of buildings, uh, and most of them are white. And we've seen, I'm seeing all these buildings named after white designers and white architects. And I, I think of my grandfather. What about the people like my grandfather who built these buildings? They're important too. Their labor was important. My mother's labor as a maid was really important in terms of the tourism industry and making, it, making guests more comfortable. And so maybe this book is a way to flip that narrative and talk about these ordinary folks. Uh -huh. Thank you, Otero. I know I, I had mentioned the two deaths, so I don't know if you felt, because the other one, you know, that was really impactful for me in the book was reading about your mother. And, you know, just again, when we're talking about environmental racism, like it's okay to have these open pits in our barrios and not seen as a safety hazard for kids. Incredible, right? Incredible, because there had been other lawsuits. There had been other kids who had died and drowned in these pits. And all it took was putting up some fences uh, or, you know, safeguarding the area. And not even that was something that the companies would engage in or the city of Tucson would engage in or that the county would engage in because it was on the south side. 
it was a population of people that they must have, even though they didn't say it, they must have deemed this population of young people who were dying and drowning in these gravel pits as expendable. Yes. So um, just to reiterate that you're you're giving us a different a different story than the one that we've been told, you know, about Tucson and and how it's progressed over the years. Right. So so with that I wanted to kind of and, take- and just lame and I give also I just don't tell this story, but I give you newspaper accounts, lawsuits, I give you examples of other children who died in that same gravel pit earlier of other children who died in other gravel pits. I mean, they're numerous. And I provide you that information so that you'll see how egregious the situation is. Because if I just told the story of my brother who drowned, then people say, well, he just drowned. But it happened over and over again. And I think that that's important to provide readers that kind of research so they can understand this thing we call environmental racism, right? For sure. All right. So in in your book, you know, you have uh, these like gut-wrenching stories, these stories of like resistance. You also like the the moments of joy that made me laugh. And one was you telling yourself that you're adopted, that your real biological father is (laughs) Kennedy. (laughs) And then um, the other one is that you would wish to be um, Pinocchio. So I'm really interested in you sharing, you know, with with our audience what that what that was about. Uh, uh, the Kennedys were big in my childhood, right? I was born 1955, so I was five when Kennedy was elected, and my family, both of my parents, were like just so into Kennedy, and they had lived through the Depression and loved Franklin Roosevelt, so they were part of this Democratic coalition. So yeah, I think I think it sounds silly that I was adopted and I was a waiting for the Kennedys to come in and claim me. I mean, that was just an escapist narrative. And I think that when I was seen, uh, where I was witnessing people move out of my neighborhood so frequently that there was a lot of insecurity. And so I was always looking for that place to belong. And in the book, I also address the two role models that I had of queerness growing up because I was looking for places where I actually belonged. And one of them was this this story of Pinocchio. And it's silly now, but at my book release party at Pueblo High School, the queer students of Pueblo High School sponsored the gathering and we had it in the large auditorium, which is really cool. And they got to choose a section that, that resonated with them. And one of the trans youth selected that story and he went up on stage and he read it. And I was so touched that it still resonates with young people. I think that Little Mermaid does that because I think that even now, as much progress as we've made, we still look for these spaces of transformation and a possibility. And Pinocchio was one of those characters in my youth, one of the few ones where he just woke up, went from a wood puppet to a little boy. So that was something that was inspiring for me. In terms of my gender transformation, I wanted to be able to wear pants, fix cars, engage in these activities that boys engaged in. And in the 1960s, you have such strict definitions about what a girl was and what a boy was. 
And now in today's language, I'm not sure that I wanted to actually be a boy, but I wanted the freedoms that came with being a boy in terms of engaging in these kinds of activities and, and participating in certain kinds of sports. And uh, I'm glad it made you laugh though, Lane, because some of the, sometimes when I was writing this book, I thought I'm just giving people this, like these stories that, that are silly, yes, but that I hope they, uh, they can contextualize it with the time. And 65 years old, and I have uh, more role models than Pinocchio in my life, but at that time, there was very few role models in terms of transformation and possibility. So could, can you tell us a little bit then more about growing up and being around queer, you know, your experience and during your adolescent years here? here in Tucson and and what that was like? Well, just imagine um, that I could not wear pants to school until I was in the 11th grade. That was 1971. So I had to wear dresses. So just imagine me in a dress and that's, that's it. You have to chuckle at that, right? And, and I guess now, you know, we girls can wear pants, but I was thinking about it and I don't know that young boys can wear dresses. So I think that there's still some norms that are institutionalized. And uh, so I didn't have a choice. I had to wear dresses. At the same time, within the, those choices, I tried to find dresses that were kind of butch. And I know that sounds silly, but I mean, in my mind, that made sense. I tried to find shoes for girls that were kind of butch in my mind. It took a lot of thought. And uh, my mother would drive my mother crazy picking out dresses because I just wouldn't step into any dress. I mean, so I think that too, that section in my um, book where I have, I finally get to cut off my trenza was a big moment because I finally got to have short hair and there was a great freedom in, in not having a trenza and it was very emancipating. But in that time in 1966, uh, 65, there was great change happening in not just in Tucson, but in the nation and globally around gender roles. I think we now accept that men can have long hair, but back then it was a big deal. And I cite some surveys, some, some local surveys about resistance to even men growing their hair a little long because the Beatles were starting to hit it big then and uh, young youth, brown youth were emulating um, those hairstyles. And it's interesting because we just take these changes for granted now, but young people, it was not always that easy. But I think that that uh, I felt uh, displaced being queer, but I also had a lot of encouragement and love from my brother-in-law, from my sister, and certainly from my mother. Because if anything, this book is about my mother's transformation too. She was born in 1913. She has a gender non-conforming child. She did what she could do. And uh, I don't want to make excuses for her, but she had to change a lot. She had to go through a lot of changes in her own life with me and with the choices that I made. Oof, I, yeah, me quedo, me quedo speechless, you know, just imagining all of those, you know, different scenarios that you just shared and how I have, you know, a lot. To, to thank for the trailblazing work that you went on to do up to the point where you end up back in, in Tucson, working at the U of A and being our local historian here for the city of Tucson. So 
you know, I'm super grateful and I look forward to the continued, you know, written word that you're going to give us in the next couple of years, now that you've retired from the U of A, but I do have one final question. Sure. And that's if you could, Ojalá you que know, te hago speechless otra vez. Que te quede speechless. Speechless. Um, if you could dream up some way to celebrate, you know, this rich history of being brown and queer and about growing up in neighborhoods like Kroger Lane, mm-hmm. what would it be? Oh, you know, I I don't really know. I think that uh, I we used to have like these big pachangas at people's houses. And that's why so many people like my brother-in-law's generation and previous they always played an instrument and it was, so they would go to these parties and they play instruments and there was always a lot of food. And I think those kinds of things were just so important in terms of like confirming to ourselves that we mattered. And so how do you generate that in this, uh, like now in 2020, how do you generate that people matter? How do we at the grassroots formulate a way that micro communities can celebrate themselves and learn their history and not depend on experts to come and help them do it. And I don't know, really, I think throughout the years, we've become so dependent on experts providing the solution. We have to flip it and look for more grassroots organizations and see what they have planned, see what they can come up. I have a lot of faith in youth and try to listen to youth because they have ways of looking at the world that's different from me. And I don't want to be the authority and tell them this is the way you should do it. I hate that. And listening to youth, I think is really important. And, and I think the solutions are there. How can we do that? How can we, if it takes funds then for these micro communities to, to do, to engage in these celebrations, not for outsiders, not for tourists, but for themselves, that's that would be key. And I, I think that would be key in terms of appreciation for themselves and others like themselves for inclusion and having these, these smaller conversations about who's included and how they could thrive. You know, I'm a historian. I walk with ghosts in the past, but I'm not really good in the future about predicting the future or having solutions grounded in future. Well, that's why you're an important guide for me, because I feel like I'm in the middle of the both worlds, you know, and so I'm trying to make sure that whatever we're passing on, we're creating the conditions, you know, where some like innovative and future looking work is connected to this past that you just talked about. So, you know, thank you for being in my life. Thank you, Lane. Thank you for, you know, all the beautiful seeds that you've planted and yeah, in my journey throughout the years. And I look forward to to continuing that work. So thank you for being a part of this. I feel like I have so many more questions. I asked like four (laughs) of the 10, you know, that I'd come up with. So we'll have to have you back some other time. So thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Lane, and good luck with this position of the Ward One representative. I know that you are a different type of elected official. Don't let that all get to you because, you know, as this book makes clear, and as I say many times, being different is good. Being different is the only way you can start to change things because going with the status quo and doing those things that are already being done, I mean, it's just going to lead us nowhere.
So thanks for being different, Lane. Thanks for listening to No Tucson. Visit our social media, keep listening on our website, or subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and in the know. And if you have future topics or people from our community that you would like us to have on the podcast, um, please send us a note. Until next time, bye.